Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I have Philip's blessing to preach for at least an hour if I need it this morning. <laughs> John rightly pointed out that if that's not evidence that the Spirit's at work, I don't know what is. (laughs) Has anyone here ever seen the Lego movie? All right, some of you hip uh, hip fellows. Okay, that's good. My kids love the Lego movie, and I was shocked by how much I loved that movie. In fact, I consider it an instant classic. It's it's on my unofficial list of perfect movies. But the plot revolves around the the main character, Emmett, and he somehow gets wrapped up in a plot that is going to determine the fate of the entire world, right? But his number one trait, the number one thing about him is that he's not special. He's forgettable, unremarkable, the, the ultimate conformist. He's being hunted by the cops, but he's so bland and generic that nobody recognizes him, and even the computer software can't tell him apart from everybody else in the entire population. There's an, an early funny scene, once the cops actually have him, uh, uh, and they, they show they're interviewing his co-workers about him and everything, and they show the, the, the one picture uh, to a girl of him, and she says, wait, does he work here? <laughs> like his own co-workers don't remember him. Nobody can say anything definitive about him, and it's pathetic and very funny. And, you know, this is sad in real life, too. It's always sad when you have to remind someone of why they should know you, Right? Uh, and we've all been there at some point or another, right? You, you meet somebody at a party or you know, some sort of function, and then like a month or two later, you, you see them again, and you go to say hi, and they have this glazed look in their eye, right? And it's obvious that they have no idea who you are. Uh, this can happen in big families with, with relatives, um, you know, at reunions and such. But, you know, like clearly they made a bigger impression on you than you did on them, and uh, sometimes you remind them who you are and they still don't remember. That's never a good sign. Sometimes they pretend to remember you, but you can tell they're pretending. That's also not a good sign, not much better. And the natural temptation in those moments is to remind them of how they know you, right? But you end up kind of feeling like you're doing the Troy McClure routine in The Simpsons, right? You know, he was the B-list actor, character on that, voiced by Phil Hartman. And every time he shows up in that show, you know, either in a late-night infomercial or even in a workplace training video or even in private conversation, he has the same catchphrase. What does he say? Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such films as... And he would fill in the blank with the most ridiculous movie titles, and that was the punchline, right? And, of course, the joke is that he's probably never been in anything interesting, Right, uh, So every time you meet him, he feels obligated to list all of his credits and let you know why he should be famous, a household name to you, right? And I guess it worked, ironically, because here I am like 20 years later still talking about him. But, 
Now, when this stuff comes up in TV and movies, it's usually funny, right? But it's embarrassing in real life because it makes you feel small and insignificant, and occasionally it can be disturbing. Uh, even in film, it can be disturbing. Uh, it's, it's almost Christmas season. I mean, everybody here, I hope, has seen a, it's a wonderful life, right? And that's a good example, right? George Bailey gets this opportunity to see what life would be like without him, and so he, he enters this world where nobody rec- recognizes or remembers him. And it's creepy because he knows these people, but they fear him. And they mistrust him because he's a stranger to them. And he knows who they are, but everything's a little skewed. So his wife screams when he tries to embrace her, of course, and his mom chases him off and slams the door. And the people that he cares about the most, they have no idea who he is. And he's left doing a more serious version of the Troy McClure routine. You know, hi, I'm George Bailey. You, remember, you may remember me from that time. I saved your life, you know, that kind of thing. But nobody remembers him. And it's scary. And the point is, we all want to be known on some level. Uh, We have a lot of introverts in this church. I know that that's true. And and they will tell you, some of them, you know, right out loud that they don't like people. Yeah, Maurice has his hand up. I see that hand. That's good. Um, What they really mean, what I think Maurice really means, right, is that they don't like lots of people around them in one place all at the same time for a long period of time, right? But even the most private person in the world, the most extreme introvert you'll ever meet, they still want to be known by somebody. Maybe just the bank teller or your barber or just your spouse or whatever, but somebody. It's like the Cheers theme song, right? You want to go where everybody or at least somebody knows your name. And that's what makes today's passage so very disturbing, You know, last week we saw that this road to destruction Jesus has been talking about, that it also runs through the church. We've been talking about that, right? And not not the invisible church, Christ's elect, right? But uh, the visible institutional church has wolves inside the walls. It has false sheep. Always has and always will until he returns. But today he gives us a a scary picture of the fate that awaits the false sheep. He kind of drops the euphemisms and he kind of tells us what it's really going to be like. And it is a tough passage. And I was kind of surprised. I, I did a Google search of like oh, the hard sayings of Jesus. And I know there's n- numerous books about this and articles that were written. And then all the ones I looked at did not usually include this passage on the list. And I thought to myself, it probably should. Because what could be more pitiful, more frightening, than to be rejected by Jesus at the judgment? In this scene... Jesus is acting as sort of heaven's bouncer, right? I've learned that we have at least one member here who used to work as a bouncer, so he knows this better than I do. But the idea of having a bouncer, right, is that people want to get into a place, right? And the bouncer's there to look tough and tell some people, no, that's his job. Maybe they're underage, maybe they're drunk, maybe they're making trouble, whatever the reason, you tell them to leave and you use force if necessary, And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's there checking the IDs, and he's sending some people away. But it's obvious, at least, that in this context, these people would like to get into heaven, right? Now, you would think that wanting to go into heaven is kind of a given, right? I mean, like, who would choose the alternative? Um, But C.S. Lewis once wrote that no one goes to hell except those who actually want to. Uh, His way of putting it is this. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, 
and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All who are in hell, choose it. That's how he words it in the great divorce. And in a sense, I think Lewis is kind of on to something, because I think it's true that no declared enemy of God is going to be happy actually spending eternity in his holy presence. Uh, any more than Ukraine wants to live under you know, Russian occupation, right? You don't want that. Every rebellious sinner, yes, they are enslaved by sin, but they also choose to sin again and again, and they are acting according to their nature. They are enemies of God, naturally. But there's another sense in which Lewis's statement is kind of misleading, because I don't think people desire hell, even if they don't want to be with God. Because hell is not pleasant. Alienation from God is not a pleasant thing. And even if they truly, inwardly hate God, most people still want his blessings. Right? They want the goods without the guy who gives them. In other words, many unbelievers are really just gold diggers. They want the perks of being the bride of Christ, but they don't really want him. And that doesn't work. Because heaven is a package deal, and there is no heaven without Jesus. And that's what he's saying in this passage. Some people are going to try to get in on the sly and enjoy the party, but I'm going to weed them out because they have no business here. Jesus has no interest in gold diggers. There's a lot of heavy truth in these verses, but the theme is basically this, that a lot of people seem to think that they're going to heaven when they're not. And a lot of people seem to have a fundamental misunderstanding of what will save them. What they should put their faith in and what Jesus will remember about them. And a lot of people are doing good, Jesus-y things, but still don't know him. And Jesus says that there will be many who will be surprised at the judgment. He will send them away rejected as strangers. And so we darn well better understand what Jesus is talking about here, right? Because once again, like we've said in other passages, lives depend on this. Everything hinges on these things. Eternity hinges on these things. People are going to hell and yet are completely confident that they are not and they will be shocked. So we need to internalize this warning. Because I think we all know some of these people. Maybe you need to examine yourself. Because in the end, the last thing you want is for Jesus to not remember you. So we saw last week that there's wolves in the church, right? And this passage is confirming that. And it confirms also that some of those wolves will not be unmasked until the very end. Uh, because Jesus tells us that they're still going to be passing themselves off as sheep come that time. The, these people are legitimately self-deceived. They are wolves who identify as and use the pronouns of sheep. Okay. And last week, Jesus' command was to beware. The focus was largely concerned with the true sheep not getting eaten up by and attacked by the false sheep, the wolves. But now he switches his focus to warning the false sheep themselves. But how is it that false sheep can convince themselves that they are authentic? How do you do that? How do you deceive yourself that thoroughly? How are so many people convinced that they're the real deal when they're not? What are they missing? 
Well, according to Jesus, it seems like they get a lot of things right, don't they? But they get the main thing wrong. They want Jesus to remember them for the good stuff that they did, and some of it is legitimately good. But as it turns out, many of the good things that we typically look for in authentic Christians, Jesus says, yeah, they're not enough. He starts with a warning that merely saying the right things is not enough. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. I want to start by looking mainly at that that first half of the verse there. I just want to observe that there is nothing wrong with addressing Jesus as Lord. Uh, That is a completely appropriate title. The Greek word is kurie, which literally means Lord. Now, it's also possible to translate it as sir in a more generic sort of greeting term. Uh, But John Stott points out that it doesn't sound like they're being very generic here. They seem like there's a deeper meaning to what they're saying, which is kind of evident from the context and also from the fact that the title is repeated the way it is. They're not stuttering. They're actually emphasizing his title. In other words, it seems like they actually, they know who Jesus is. They're not saying this ironically or sarcastically. I think they are verbally affirming that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord. They address him by his proper title, and that's a good thing. They're saying he's not just a good example or a good teacher. He's the Lord. He's in charge. They acknowledge that verbally. I think about that and I'm like, well, that's not a bad thing, right? And isn't that the necessary starting point? Paul says in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, all right, Jesus is obviously preaching this sermon before the resurrection happened, but surely confessing him as Lord cannot be a bad place to start. Obviously, right? Verbally acknowledging his lordship is critically important. But Jesus wants more than that. He says, not everyone who verbally acknowledges me will get in. In and of itself, acknowledging his lordship is not sufficient. It will not save you. That's an ominous piece of information, isn't it? Uh, Because it's not hard to find people who will verbally acknowledge Jesus You know, we live in a day when many people will check the box and say that they are Christians, right? And in a loose sense, they're sort of declaring Jesus to be their Lord, right? 63% of Americans claim the Christian label. But fewer than 40% are members of a church. About 20% actually go to church on a weekly basis. And when you consider that many so-called churches are not even preaching the gospel, those numbers are even less impressive. We've seen the rise in recent years of evangelicals as a voting block, right? We'd have really broadened out the term. And I remember during the 2016 election hearing that more and more people seem to be self-identifying to pollsters as evangelicals. And there was a lot of debate about why most of this group backed a certain candidate who had a sketchy background in his marital and extramarital relationships. But it's interesting that when they analyze the data, like a large and growing number of these self-identified evangelicals are not even regular church attenders. They're claiming the label, but they're not claiming the Lord himself. Lord, Lord. And it's not just a political phenomenon. Uh, I had a neighbor some years back who, in our short time living next door to him, managed to leave his wife, 
and go through a revolving door of live-in girlfriends, and he was something of a party animal. Not always an easy guy to live near. And he was certainly not a right-wing evangelical. Um, But the irony was that he had a vanity plate on the front of his car that proudly proclaimed, Jesus is Lord. And I often ask myself, Lord of what? You don't go to church. Nothing in your life reflects his lordship. So this is verbal affirmation, advertising, right? But it's nothing more than that. And maybe some of you have met these types of people that will say, you know, I'm spiritual but not religious. And you'll meet professing Christians who insist they don't need to go to church to commune with God. You know, I go to meet God in the mountains. And it's like, yeah, I hate to break it to you. Unless your name is Moses or maybe Maria von Trapp. Don't give me that. Just go to church. (laughs) But anyway, it's clear that simply saying Lord, Lord is not going to save you. Simply calling Jesus Lord is not enough. He won't remember that. But it's also not enough to intellectually accept that he is Lord. In other words, if John Stott is right, and he usually is, Ruth, right, that these people are actually properly acknowledging as truth that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord, if they're actually using his Greek title, Kyrie, as a synonym for God's name, which is what the context seems to indicate, then we have to conclude that not only are the words insufficient, even knowing and intellectually believing his true lordship is not enough. It is not enough to intellectually accept that Jesus is Lord. This is why James tells us in his epistle that even the demons believe that and tremble. Satan himself intellectually accepts that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because he's not stupid. But he's not happy about it. There is a difference between saying and believing true things and worship. Affirming that Jesus is in fact Lord, even believing it intellectually, is not sufficient. In other words, saying Lord, Lord may mean you know who he is, but that doesn't mean you know him any more than I know the president, right? If I address Joe Biden as Mr. President, that doesn't mean I know him and he knows me. It says nothing about our relationship or even our opinion of each other. It doesn't even mean I voted for him. All it means is that I know who he is and what his title is. I'm showing formal respect, but that doesn't make us bosom buddies, right? Likewise, knowing Jesus is not merely an intellectual exercise. It's not enough to know who he is and his name and his titles We don't want to know about him. We want to actually know him. Okay, so Jesus won't remember people who just say these things or even think these things. Okay, so what will Jesus remember? If not the merely verbal or intellectual faith, what will he remember? Well, maybe he'll remember us for our works. After all, Jesus just said, right, that we need to do the will of the Father, right? And of course, That sounds simple enough as a concept, but in practice we've been seeing again and again throughout the Sermon on the Mount how difficult this is, right? We know that. We've been talking about it for months. The the entire Sermon on the Mount is a manual on discipleship, and we're not following it very well a lot of the time, right? It's hard. And the more closely you read it, the harder it gets. Now, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to try, right? You have the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to be walking accordingly, right? That's why in our PCA membership vows, we promise to endeavor to live as becomes the followers of Christ. That's what discipleship is all about. We are trying. 
we are endeavoring by the power of the Holy Spirit to live like disciples. But when I read verse 21, I realize at a glance that it can sound like works righteousness. I don't think it's that simple because we soon find out that the false sheep actually have plenty of good works that they can point to. So glad you asked about that, Jesus. Allow me to show you my resume. But in the end, Jesus doesn't seem to be very impressed by their good works either, does he? Look what he says that they say. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? That's three categories of good works, and they're pretty impressive, honestly. It's more impressive than anything I've done this week. They say that they prophesied, which means they spoke on God's behalf, presumably from his word. Uh, We might be talking about pastors here, Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers, right? Uh, And now maybe most of them were teaching false doctrine and misusing the word, but I don't think that's exclusively the case. Sometimes false sheep say true things. They say they cast out demons, and I'm willing to bet that that legitimately happened. Which means many people were blessed and received legitimate healing and relief from the ministry of these false sheep. They say they did many mighty works. Now, that would typically imply miracles, but it should easily include other great works that come short of miracles. Wonderful charities, service projects, missions trips, Uh, Social and political activism, relief work, fundraising, philanthropy, counseling, you name it. If there was a good thing to be done, somewhere along the line, they did it. Unless we assume that they're bluffing and that none of this stuff really happened, that's a tempting interpretation. We could jump to that, but I'm not sure it's accurate or that the, the, the passage actually gives credence to that. I think they're giving an accurate picture of things that really happened. And notice the refrain that they give with each point. Every good deed they have done was done in Jesus' name. Not for duty and humanity, but for Jesus we did these things. Bear in mind, Jesus is telling the story here, right? He could have clarified at this point that, yeah, but they were lying. They were faking it. All the prophecies were lies, and the demons, they weren't real demons anyway. And uh, the mighty works, they weren't that mighty. This would be the time to say that, right? But he doesn't do any of that. He gives the impression that the good deeds were real, The mighty works were legitimately mighty. The exorcisms were real and actually happened. The prophetic words may have been true, even if the prophets themselves were false. And if that sounds impossible and ridiculous, you have to think about Judas. We know that Jesus sent Judas out to minister with the other disciples in his name, and we know for a fact that therefore he must have preached sermons, driven out demons, and done mighty works, and yet Jesus called him a devil. So God can use even false prophets to accomplish his works, just like he did with Balaam in the Old Testament, right? And I have known people personally who have received the gospel from someone who later abandoned their faith. I had a professor who trained under a man who later abandoned the church and walked out on his marriage. Uh, I have known many who have been baptized by men who later disgraced themselves and are no longer walking with the Lord. 
Does any of that keep God from working? I don't think so. Because the Holy Spirit can speak truth through false prophets. He can even drive out demons and do countless other good works through the hands of pagans and unbelievers. But that doesn't mean Jesus will recognize them at the judgment. And that's why he concludes with, as Phil pointed out, one of the scariest verses really in the New Testament there, verse 23. He says, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus doesn't call them liars. He doesn't deny that they called him Lord or that they intellectually accepted him. He doesn't even deny the works that they did. What he denies is they themselves. I don't know who you are. In fact, it's even worse because he says, I never knew you. I've never seen you before in my life. Now, I want to point out a couple of things about that because one is that Jesus never forgets a face. This verse actually makes clear that these people did not lose their salvation or anything like that. They never had it. There's no such thing as losing your union with Christ. He doesn't say, I used to know you, but where did you go wrong? No, he says, I never knew you. But Jesus never forgets a face, or else he would remember these guys. And I also want to point out that good works done by unrepentant sinners are still ultimately sinful. Because they just gave a list of good works that they did, and Jesus responds by calling them workers of lawlessness. Wicked men and women can do objectively good things, but they will never truly glorify God in the process, and it's because they're strangers to Jesus. They don't know him, and he says, I never knew you. Now, when he says that, of course we know that Jesus can't mean it in the literal sense. He's the son of God. The whole world was made through him. Of course he knows everyone. He knows everything everyone ever has done, right? But when he says this, he's using the verb to know in its biblical sense, right? He means closeness. He means intimacy. It's the same language used in the Old Testament as a euphemism for sexual intimacy, as in Adam knew his wife. Jesus is on intimate terms with his bride, and his sheep know him and recognize his voice, and he knows them and loves them with a complete and perfect love. That is not true for false sheep. And that is why they're stuck here at the judgment pulling the Troy McClure routine, right? You may remember me from that time I said, Lord, Lord, and that other time when I fed the homeless. But in reality, these false sheep are violating the third commandment, not because they use God's name disrespectfully. That's how we usually reference that command. That's not the primary meaning. It's taking the Lord's name in vain. It's applying that label to yourself when it's not true. They take his name in vain. They wear his name on their lips and in their heads and even in the works that they do, but he is not in their hearts. And they can fool everyone in the world, but they can't fool Jesus. He knows his own, and he never forgets a face. And that's the difference in the end. You can do a lot of things right in life and still get the main thing wrong. 
talking like a Christian, acting like a Christian, thinking even like a Christian, may set you apart from the world. And of course, we should do those things. And if we have the Holy Spirit, we will. But what sets true sheep apart from false sheep is not what we say or what we think or even the works that we do. The ultimate difference is whether you actually know Jesus and does he know you. Are you on intimate terms with him personally or will you be a stranger in that day? You know what the false sheep get wrong? I've been racking my brain about it all week. Because if what they say is true, it's not bad stuff that they were doing, right? And maybe the road to hell is paved with good intentions and everything, but I thought to myself, like, why would Jesus plant this seed of doubt by saying these things? But it actually didn't click with me till this morning a little bit. (laughs) If Jesus is the bouncer of heaven, and he asks you, why should I let you in? If you start your answer in the first person... You're doing it wrong. If he asks why you're here and you start with yourself, didn't I do this in your name? That's the wrong starting point. Because it's not about what you did in Jesus' name, it's about what he did in yours. He lived the perfect life in your place. He died in your place. He was raised for you. Because you did not do the Father's will, so he did it for you. How dare anyone mention themselves at the gates of heaven? How dare that be the first words out of your mouth? If you truly know Jesus, you won't make that mistake. Because you know better. The Father's will is that you know Jesus. And I don't want you to know just about Jesus. I want you to know him. I want it for me too, right? It's like the story of the leper that we read earlier, right? You know, nine of them followed the letter of the law. They went to the priest. But the one who went back to be with Jesus got the main thing right. He remembered Jesus, and so Jesus will remember him. Reciting the sinner's prayer is not enough. Right doctrine is not enough. Miracles, good deeds, and solid teachings are not enough. Being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily an academic exercise, and it's not about using the exact right words. It's about a relationship with the guy who never forgets a face. And that's the promise of the gospel. The promise is that when you read those horrible words of verse 23, you know that the opposite is true if you belong to Jesus. The will of the Father is that you would know the Son, repent and trust in him, not just verbally, not just intellectually, or with your good deeds, important as those are, but in your heart. And if that sounds sappy and sentimental, it's because, look, Paul said it in that passage I read earlier in Romans 10. The words we confess need to match what's in our hearts. Jesus can see through empty words and actions, but he always remembers his sheep. So you fix your eyes on him and you put no confidence in what you say or what you think or what you do, but in Christ. 
you know, I just want to add, beloved, that none of us will be remembered long on this earth. You know, when you die, you will cease being an everyday word in the house probably within months or maybe a year or two. Uh, in a hundred years, you'll be little more than a statistic, a name on a genealogy somewhere, right, on a computer. You will be forgotten by history. That's irrelevant. The promise of the gospel is that Jesus remembers his sheep. And he never forgets a face. And what could be more reassuring than that? It's just like the thief on the cross asked him, what was the thief's request? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you know what? He did. And if you trust him and ask him, he'll remember you too. That's a wonderful promise from a wonderful Savior. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you that even the hardest words that you give, Lord, have promises just under the surface. Lord, you won't remember strangers, Lord. We pray that we would not be strangers to you, Lord, and we know that as your sheep, trusting in you, you will remember us. You've promised that. We thank you for that, Lord. Teach us every day to put less and less faith and confidence in ourselves and what we have done and said and believed even. Help us to fix our eyes ever on your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.